Good morning. I'm Andy Studebaker. Today we will be reading from 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 38, which can be found on page 247 in the Pew Bible. 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 38. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while We were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and 200 skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sias of parched grain and a 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them out on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good." God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. 
When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is within him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my lord, whom you sent. Now then, my lord, as the lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the lord has restrained you from blood guilt, and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies, and those who seek to do you evil, to my lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my lord be given to the young men who follow my lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. She told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andy. That was a, that was a lot of reading for you, wasn't it? Come on, man. Thank you. Hey, it's great to be here today. If I've not met, uh, met you, I'm Jimmy. And uh, hey, next week is Easter, which is very exciting. Come on. And uh, next week, we're going to do things just a bit differently. There's two worship services next week. There's one at 9, and there's one also at 1030. At 9 o'clock, there's no child care. There's going to be care for the kids actually at 1030. Now listen, there's so much research that says people will come to church with you if you just invite them. It's amazing. People just long to be invited. So here, here's my big challenge to you. Just invite one person this week. Just invite one person, one neighbor or one friend from work or one friend from school, but just find one person and say, hey, just come next week. It's going to be a very special day. Chris is going to speak from Acts chapter 10. It's a powerful passage 
And so we just really encourage you, come back to be with us for Easter. Is there anything else that I need to say about Easter? Only up to three at 1030. Sorry? Only up to three years old at 1030. Only up to three years old at 1030. And the rest are in here. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Let me pray for us before we jump into this text. Father, thank you for this glorious day. Thank you for those kids singing. What a great joy that was just to, uh, just to see the young people and just, just these young kids up here, at, just to worship you. It just stirs our hearts. Father, thank you that you know every person here. Thank you that you know every story here. You know where we've come from. You know the things that just pound on our hearts this day. You know, those people that come here today, they know without question that they need you. You know that there's people in this room that are convinced that they're doing just fine and they don't need you. Father, wherever we are this morning, I would pray that you would meet each one here. And I pray, Father, that this message would stir and echo in our hearts deeply. um, That we would hear your voice this day. So we thank you for this Palm Sunday. We thank you for the start of Holy Week. And we pray that our minds would be fixed and set upon you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a fun day, not just because the kids sang. It's a fun day because I trust most of you will go home, have a quick lunch, and then make your way to Lawrence, Kansas, and watch the KU Parade, which everybody should be doing today. But I trust you'll come home after the parade and watch the Masters as you take an afternoon nap, right? Um, And I don't know if you're going to watch the Masters today. It should be a fun day, and I don't know if anybody here is into golf and watching things like the Masters. Um, so for years, my uh, wife and I had the joy, and we got to serve a church which was not that far from actually Augusta. And so there were those in the church that had these tickets, which are very hard to get. And so I was very privileged to go three times. And uh, it's fun to go to the Masters. It's amazing. Because it's like the nicest park in the world. I mean, with the dogwoods and the azaleas, it's staggering. And it's like there happens to be this golf course in this park. It is just more than you can ever possibly imagine. And the last time I was there was back actually in 05, uh, which, uh, which was a great year, big year for actually Tiger won, and just some amazing shots that year. And so I've got this friend, and he knows, he knows everything about the course. And so we always sit in the exact same place. We always kind of walk with the group, and then we wind up actually at 16, and we sit in the very top row in the far, far right, because you can see 15, you can see 16, you can see 17T, and then you can see also actually uh, a hole down the hill, I think it's five. So anyway, you, you can, I mean, you can just have this great seat and just watch action just constantly. Because 16 is probably the most amazing hole. Par three. It's about 165 yards, and there's just this amazing pond in front of it. It's just so picturesque, and I mean, azaleas everywhere, and it's, it's just absolutely gorgeous. So I'm there on 16 and 05, and it's a great day. That's the first day, and we're there actually on Thursday, and we're just, you know, you watch all the greats come through, and you watch Tiger come through, and here comes Phil, and here comes Freddie. You watch everybody, and you're just, it's just spectacular. And then comes Billy Casper. And at that point, I think he was 73 years old. Now, it's interesting because if you win actually in a major, you can play in that for 10 years. You're actually exempt in the majors, except the Masters. If you win the Masters, 
You're exempt for life. You can play in the Masters as long as you want to, as long as you think that you can be actually competitive. Now, there's that point where you might not be able to be competitive, and they might say, maybe you shouldn't play this year. You might not be real competitive, but it's actually up to the person. So they had gone to Billy Casper, who was, I mean, who was an all-time great, and said, hey, Billy, maybe you shouldn't play this year. And he said, you know what? Man, I'll be fine. I'll be absolutely great. So... 16 on Thursday, here comes Billy Casper. We're like, come on, that's Billy Casper, one of the greatest golfers of all time. And he hits his tee shot and it goes in the water. And you think, oh man, that, you just feel so bad for him. So he goes to the drop zone and hits shot at that point number three because he's got this shot that, you know, was in, anyway, so he hits his next shot, it goes in the water. Hits another penalty shot, it goes in the water. Hits another penalty shot and it goes in the water. And you're just dying. You're thinking, I can't believe I'm here and I'm watching this. He hits another penalty shot. It goes in the water. He hits one more shot. It goes on the green. He three putts for 14. Worst hole in Masters history. He broke every record in the world that round. He had the worst front nine in Masters history, the worst back nine in Masters history, the worst hole in Masters history. He shot a 106 which was 34 over par, it was absolutely a train wreck. And the next day I got up and I opened up and I read the scores in the paper and his score isn't there because he didn't sign his scorecard. And in golf, if you don't sign your scorecard, it's like it never happens. It just all magically went away. There's no record of it. I mean, if you look up the master's records, there's no record of this. Trust me, I was there watching the entire thing. There's no record of this anywhere. It didn't happen because he didn't sign the scorecard. And I remember I thought, wouldn't it be great if life were like that? You have really rough days and you're like, I'm not going to sign my scorecard today. This has been a terrible week. I'm not going to sign. Maybe you would say these past two years... I'm not going to sign my scorecard. These past two years have been so hard and so painful and so rough. I don't want to sign my scorecard. I don't want them to count. I wish these past two years especially would just go away. Because there's been massive amounts of fear, anxiety, depression, even suicide. There's been social issues. There's been massive, massive economic issues. There's been health issues for everybody. Maybe these past two years have been a wake-up call. And I believe that sometimes God issues wake-up calls in lots of different ways. And he says, you know what, I I, I want you to wake up to this. I want you to wake up to the reality of what I can offer you. The fact that what we seek in this world, what we long for in this world, these things will never ultimately meet your needs. You see, this is Holy Week. This is Passion Week. This is Palm Sunday. It's, It's like a lightning strike this week. You know how you're in the midst of massive darkness, You can't see anything, and then there's a lightning strike, and all of a sudden it's like, just for an instant, everything is perfectly clear. Listen, Holy Week is a lightning strike in history. It helps us just to see things much more clearly, and to see the things just the way the things actually are. And so I'm praying that today and this week would be a lightning strike in your life. And so we've been in the gospel for months of Matthew, and we've been, you know, walking through Matthew. And so today, because it's Palm Sunday, we thought we'd go to the Old Testament. Is that all right? Which, in one sense, it doesn't make sense, because so much of the Gospels, over half of the Gospels, take place actually this week. It's just a record of what took place 
this week. But I think that this story points to what took place this week. I think that this story points to Jesus. This story is very much about Palm Sunday because it's about Jesus and it's about the cross. I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about the selfish life of Nabal, the selfless courage of Abigail, and the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. So first of all, the selfish life of Nabal. So we heard as Andy read, there's this man, he's very, very rich, the, you know, 3,000 goats, uh, excuse me, 3,000 sheep and all of these goats. And I mean, he's, it says he's very, very rich. He has a wife who is amazing because she is discerning and she's also very, very beautiful. But it says the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And so you read that story and you think, wait, wait, wait. How did she get with him? Right? I mean, she's discerning and she's beautiful. She's got everything. And he's this, he's just this mean dude. He's just surly and he's just awful. He's terribly mean. First of all, his name is not Nabal. Why do I know that? How? Because Nabal means fool. Nobody would name their child fool. This is my son, fool. It's a nickname, but it's a nickname that has become so permanent it's stuck. And now it's his name. That tells you a massive amount about him. I mean, it's just a nickname. It's, hey, this is my friend Stupid. Really? Is that his name? Well, we, that's what we call him because we've called him that for so long it just stuck. I don't even know his real name. It's just, that's what it is. It says in the Psalms that Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is clearly an arranged marriage, which was very, very common back then. So I'm going to guess Abigail's dad is like, well, you know what? He's kind of a mean dude. He's not that handsome. He's kind of these, all these awful things, but he's really, really, really rich. And he'll take care of my daughter. And just for her security and just for her to have some things in life, uh, I want to go ahead and say yes. So it's an arranged marriage. And it says that there's this man, David, and he has all of these other men. And he hears that it is sheep shearing time. So, so he says, hey, uh, go up and find this guy and sh- just share this, you know, just share all these things with him and say to him, hey, peace be to you and peace be to your house. Peace be to everything that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now, everybody that works for you, they have been with us. And you know what? When they were with us, we did them no harm. In other words, we watched over them the entire time. They were missing nothing the whole time they were there, actually. Ask them. They'll tell you everything. Therefore, let my young man find favor in your eyes, because this is a feast day. Please give them whatever you have into your son, David. Now, that might sound a little bit unusual. It's like, okay, what's, what's going on here? It was very, very common that if you were trying to find some, you know, some, some type of a job, a thing that you could do would be you would guard flocks and you would guard sheep and you would guard goats. You would watch over them. And it was just understood that if you watched over them and everything was safe on the big day when they would ultimately shear sheep, you would go and you would be able to get paid for those things. You would get paid back oftentimes in food. It was a very common thing. And you might say, that's down, that just sounds really bizarre because how could you have this type of an arrangement 
When there's no contract, you mean you just walk in and you say, I'm the guy that watched over your flocks and they give you money? Yes, you, you do it every week. You do it every week. You walk into a restaurant. There's no contract with those that help you. There's no contract you sign. But it's just understood. If I get good service, I'm going to tip. Everybody knows that. If I get good service, I'm going to leave a tip because this is how these people get paid. It's the same thing back here. Everybody knew this. Everybody understood this. If you watch over their flocks, if you watch over their sheep, you're going to get paid. That was just very standard. And so they came and they say all of these things and then they waited. And yet Nabal says this. Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who comes from I don't know where? Wow. The Lord's anointed has come for his share. David and David's men have come for his share. And the ball says that word that we don't teach to our children, but somehow they learn mine. It's mine. It's a dangerous place when we get to that place in life that we say, hey, you know what, everything I have, it's mine. My money, my house, my car, my job, my family, my finances, my vacation home, my, it's, it's mine. Everything I have is absolutely mine. And yet the scriptures make very clear the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all belongs to him. He is ultimately the owner of all things. But we have these children. We don't know how they learn that word, but very quickly that word starts to pop up, mine. I was with, um, I was actually about 30 years ago, I was in a restaurant and I was there actually with uh, Megan Dodd and um, we stop off at McDonald's and she, we stopped off there because she wants a happy meal and I'm not crazy about McDonald's. So I thought, you know what? I don't want to order anything. So she, she, you know, she has a happy meal and we sit down and I begin to smell the McDonald's French fries and I thought I'm in trouble. And I thought, you know, I probably don't want to get a whole thing of French fries. I just want a few of Megan's French fries. That would be no big deal. So I said, Megan, can I have just a few of your French fries? And she said, no, Daddy, these, these are my French fries. I said, sweetheart, you know what? I don't want to have a bunch of your French fries. I just want a couple of French fries. They smell really good. I do like McDonald's French fries. So I would just like to have a few of your French fries. Daddy, these are mine. If you want French fries, you need to get your own. I'm like, sweetheart, let, let me, baby, these, let, let me just try to use some basic things here with you as far as logic. I, I have all the money, baby. You, you, you don't have any money. I just paid for those french fries, so technically those are my french fries. <laughs> technically, everything on your plate is mine, so I, I, I just want to, I want to take back a little bit of what's mine. And she says, no, get your own french fries. <laughs> and we laugh at the immaturity of a child until God prompts us to give to our church and to ministries, and to be open with what we have. And we say, God, these are my French fries. God, don't, don't ask me to do these things. These, these French fries belong to me. And we have the same immaturity as a small child. God owns absolutely everything. 
And you know why we give to this church? You know why we give to other ministries? You know why we do these things? Because it reminds us that God owns all of the French fries, and we give back just a couple as just a reminder. God owns it all. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. So David's men, they go back empty-handed, and they tell David, it says, every single word. And then it says this in verse 13. Well, since I'm a man after God's own heart, I'll be a peacemaker, and I'll forgive this man Nabal for saying such stupid things. Is that what it says in the text? No, that's not what it says. It says this. Every man, strap on your sword. We're going to go kill everybody. They're not going to pay us for what we just did. We're going to go slaughter every male. We're going to take everybody down. That's what David says. Wow. There's judgment. Judgment is coming. The Lord's anointed is going to come in judgment. Nabal is a fool. He has offended the Lord's anointed. You see, it's a story of massive contrast. How, how do we respond to the Lord's anointed? This passage has absolutely everything to do with us. The end is coming, and the way that we think about the Lord's anointed is going to have a massive difference upon what happens to us. And so we think, okay, well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm for justice. I'm all about justice. I watch the news about Ukraine, and my heart just breaks because I want justice for those people. And yet when we talk about God's justice, we talk about God's judgment, some people begin to hold back a little bit and say, you know what, I'm, I'm for justice, but let's not get carried away with God's justice. Why, why do we start to hedge our bets a little bit when it comes to God? Because I think that in our hearts, a lot of us believe, I might be in the ball. I might be a fool. I might live as a practical atheist. I might live as if there is no God. I might actually reject the Lord's anointed. This is Holy Week. The gospel says very clearly, I, not, I did not get what I deserved. I deserved death. I deserved to be punished, and I got forgiveness. I deserved wrath, and I got love. And this motivates me to respond to the Lord's anointed with amazing surrender. So then next we come to the selfless courage of Abigail. Verse 14. And there, there's a young man, and he says, you know what? Behold, David sent all of these messengers to greet our masters, but he, he railed at them. In other words, he attacked them. He condemned them. Yet these men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when they were out there in the fields with us. As long as we went with them, they were a wall to us, both night and day, all the while while we were out there keeping the sheep. Now, Therefore, know this, and just consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all of his house. And then he adds this, which I love. He's such a worthless man. You can't even talk to him. I'm, I'm stirred deeply by that phrase. They were a wall around us night and day. The Lord's anointed... They came and watched over us, and the Lord's anointed in his armies, they were a wall around us night and day. And so what comes to your mind when you think about that? A wall around us night and day, do you think, well, that means we're going to be safe. That means I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to get cancer. I'm not going to be involved in divorce. I'm not going to be involved in any pain. Uh, what, what comes to mind when you think God is a wall around us 
day and night. I was honored this week to spend the week in Haiti with, with a bunch of Haitian pastors, and I've been kind of trying to work on this message over these past months, and uh, so I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I want to preach this message to these guys on Wednesday. So I did. It was good practice for that, but it wasn't just practice because I think that God used it. And after I was done, we went back and we talked about that part of the passage. God has been a wall around us day and night. Now listen, these are Haitian pastors. Massive natural tragedies, massive economic disasters. You could just go on and on. Untold violence in the country. It's very, very unsafe in so many ways. They've got COVID. They've got other epidemics. They have a bad hospital system, bad healthcare system. We could go on and on. They're one of the, and I mean, really, just, just this terrible place right now. And yet afterwards, they went around and gave testimony to how God has been a wall around them day and night. It was incredible just to hear their stories and sometimes with tears and sharing, yeah, my wife has been kidnapped three times at gunpoint. And yet God has been a wall around us. We have suffered terribly in story after story. And yet God has been a wall, you know, this wall around us day and night. I lost children in the earthquake. And yet God has been a wall around us. And here their perspective, it was so deeply stirring to me. Because I thought there's amazing perspective. That even in the midst of heartache and even in the midst of pain, that they're saying, the Lord has been a wall around us day and night. Incredible. The Lord's anointed is there. It says that at that point, Abigail knows that she has to do things, and she does things very quickly. And it's interesting. Three times it says she does things very quickly. I mean, she does not waste time. She does not take a long time to process this. She knows she has to move very, very, very quickly. So it says she takes large amounts of bread and wine and meat and grain and raisins and figs, and she puts them on the donkeys. And she says, you go on ahead of me. But she does not tell her husband. And she rides out on the donkey, and she comes under this this big part of this mountain, And at the same time, you have this man, David, and 400 men, and they have their swords drawn, and they meet. So I just want you to just think about this amazing picture. Here are 400 men. It's a Braveheart moment. I mean, they've got their swords out. They're charging. They're going to slaughter every me, you know, I'm going to, you know, I mean, I'm like every male, and they've got their swords out, and they're like, ah, we're going to go, we're going to slaughter these people. And here comes Abigail on a donkey, you know, with a crock pot. And they meet in this mountain. And Abigail jumps down off of her donkey. And she bows down on her face. And says the most amazing things in the world. She says this. On me, on me alone, O oh Lord... Let the guilt be on me. Let the blame be on me. You know what? I'll, I'll take the blame for all of this. She, she's done nothing wrong. It was Nabal. Why, why, why would she take the blame? It's not her. But she says, listen, let, let me take the blame. And then she says this, actually, verse 27. You know what? Now, you know what? I brought you a present. Let this be brought to my Lord and... 
given to all of your men. She knows, she knows that there's a debt that has to be paid. She knows what they did for her men. She knows what they have all done. And she knows that as a result that there was a debt that had to be paid. They have to have the food. And so she comes and she pays this debt. And then she says, please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She asks for mercy. Abigail becomes a type of Christ. This story is all about Jesus. Abigail meets up, meets up with David, the Lord's anointed, and says, you know what? I, I will take the blame for this. I want all of the guilt to fall upon me. There's a debt that has to be paid. I want to pay that debt right now. Please forgive us. Please forgive us and be merciful to us and remember this. You see, Jesus is the greater Abigail because everything in that passage points us to that. And David comes back to his senses. He says, wow, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me this day. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried out to come to meet me. Truly by tomorrow morning, there would have not been left to Nabal one male. They would have all been slaughtered. David then received from her hand that gift that she'd brought, and he said, go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. Which brings us to the sacrificial work of Jesus. We just sang about this. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You see, God comes in judgment for us. God comes in divine judgment. And in the mountain ravine of history, more than 2,000 years ago, Jesus meets God the Father. And Jesus says, all these people behind me, me and you, all these people behind me, you know what? Let the blame fall on me. I've lived a perfect life. I've done nothing wrong. I've lived a perfect life. They have sinned day by day, but let the blame fall on me. There's a debt that has to be paid. There's a blood, that, there's a blood debt that has to be paid. There's a life debt that has to be paid. I'm going to be the one that will actually pay that debt. Please forgive these people. Please be merciful to them. That's incredible. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of Holy Week. That's the message that we go to over and over again. It's the gospel message of the fact that Jesus Christ is the one that has done that for us. And only because he met God and only because of what took place at the cross and that the wrath of God was satisfied by Jesus upon the cross, that is the only way that we have life itself. We desperately, desperately need this. Because our tendency is to do everything we can to maintain control, to try to work things out ourselves, to try to make things right with God ourselves, and it's only through Jesus. And we need to be brought back to that message over and over and over again. A 
It says that Abigail came home and she goes to her husband Nabal. And it says that behold, he was holding a feast in the house like the feast of a king. His heart was very merry within him because he was very drunk. It's incredible. He knows the Lord's anointed is going to come in judgment. He knows he's offended him. And yet, he's living like a king. It says he's having a feast like a king. He knows what's going to happen. And he's just completely ignoring it. He's laughing in the face of coming judgment. That is a picture of so many in our culture. They're laughing in the face of coming judgment. They know that they aren't in charge of their own lives. They know that the Lord's anointed is going to ultimately come in judgment. And they just ignore God and say, why, why do I even have to have this? This is ridiculous. And they live like they are in charge of their own life. They live like they're the king. And yet judgment is coming. He's a fool. His name is appropriate. He's rejected the Lord's anointed. He's living as a practical atheist. He's living as if the Lord's anointed does not exist. And the thing is, I think there's so many times which I live a lot like Nabal. Because I realize that every time that I sin, in that moment, I'm refusing to believe that everything that I need has already been met in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time I sin, I believe that I need to get something in addition to what Jesus has already done to make me happy in that moment. That's the essence of sin. Jesus isn't enough. There's got to be something else. So Abigail is wise and smart, and she knows I'm not going to talk to him when he's drunk. So she waits until that next morning. Can you just picture this? He finally starts to sober up and she leans over and whispers in his ear let me tell you exactly what happened yesterday and as she's talking can you just see his eyes just get bigger and bigger and bigger and when she's done telling him he has a heart attack he goes into a coma and 10 days after that he dies David hears that he dies And he comes and he takes Abigail to be his wife. Nabal was a fool. The Lord's anointed is coming in judgment. You see, there is a one true king and his name is Jesus. He came in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. He came in one sense being hailed as a king. And then later that week he would be ushered out as a lamb on the way to slaughter. So what are the results of Christ's actions on our behalf? What are the results of the fact that Jesus met the wrath of God in that ravine and that he said, let the blame fall on me, I will pay the debt. Please forgive these people, show mercy to them. What what are the overall results of that? We have hope in Jesus. We can find incredible, amazing grace in Jesus. There is forgiveness in Jesus. There is righteousness in Jesus. There's also adoption in Jesus. There's life in Jesus. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. We are broken people. And we don't need to be tweaked. We need to have our lives radically changed. Because the Bible says we are dead in our sins. We are not sick in our sins. We are dead in our sins. 
You don't need to be resuscitated today. You need to be resurrected today. You don't need to be revived today. You need to be reborn today. So Billy Casper didn't sign his scorecard at the Masters. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ signs the scorecard of your life in his blood every day. He redeems your life every day. He gives us hope. That's the only hope that we have. This is the greatest week. This is the greatest time. Because we all have one thing here very much in common. We're broken and we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need a Savior. And Jesus, the Lord's anointed, the greater Abigail, the greater David, he is the one who satisfied the wrath of God for you. In that mountain ravine of all of history, he was there. That's why we take every week this meal. We take this Lord's Supper because it reminds us of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this week, as you take of these elements, you can take them here or here up front, and gluten-free is over here as well. But as you take this day, the bread and the wine, I want you just to have in your mind, Jesus Christ is the greater Abigail. He put you behind him when the wrath of God was coming. And for you, for you very, very personally, let the blame fall on me. I want to pay the debt that this person behind me owes. Please forgive this person. Show mercy to them. And that act by Jesus Christ on the cross gives us life. And so we celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. So as you come, be reminded of that incredible mercy, of that incredible grace poured out to you today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this day we want to just empty ourselves of our own self-righteousness, of our own thoughts that we are the king, that we are in charge. Father, so often we are the fool. We confess that to you. We're the fool. We live like we're the king. We live like practical atheists so, many of, so much of the time. But Father, this day we want to come and lay it all down before you. Father, you have been a wall around us day and night. And even through pain and heartache and suffering, you have been a wall around us. You have never left us. You have never forsaken us. You have always been there. And so, Father, we thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so, Father, this day as we partake of the bread and the cup, I pray that we would just remember, we would remember what you have done for us. And that on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We give you the glory, thanks, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.